You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. invite you to get out your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. It is the little tiny Old Testament book in between Judges and 1 Samuel. So if you can't find Ruth, you can go way back in the beginning, find Judges and go to the right, or find Samuel and go to the left. Ruth, and we are now in chapter 3 this morning, Ruth in the third chapter. And just in keeping with what we've been doing, I'll read the whole chapter. I know it's a long narrative, but uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. And then next week, we'll read all of the fourth chapter. And we will have read the whole book of Ruth together as a congregation during this Advent season. And I hope that it is a blessing to you. Um, And my prayer is that it would be. This book is hugely powerful. The idea of longing uh, for the coming promise of God. And so this is... I'll invite you to follow along, page 264 in your pew Bible. This is Ruth, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. 
So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. I want very deeply for us to see the beauty of this book. It's an incredible narrative. I mean, just the writing, I mean, just the the pacing of the storyline, just the way that, I mean, this is 12 years of events crammed into four short chapters, and the individual who wrote this book is just really highlighting the drama of this relationship. And I want us to hear the heartbeat of this narrative, because if you can capture the heartbeat of what's going on in the book of Ruth, you will never look at your life the same again. And I know that sounds like overstatement. And I know pastors are prone to overstatement. I get that part. But if you get the heartbeat of the book of Ruth, I mean it. You will not see your life the same way again. This book is often referred to as a love story. And so they talk about it's a love story in the, in the Old Testament. And often what they mean is that it's a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. I mean, it's... it's it certainly does end, well, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, uh, but there is this interest going on between Ruth and Boaz, but that isn't the real love story put on display in the book of Ruth. What is ultimately revealed in this book is the love of God for his people. The book of Ruth is a story of God's love for his people, that no matter the trial, they can trust him. This is the heartbeat of the book of Ruth. It's a love story, not of Boaz and Ruth so much, but of God for his people. And by the end, we might actually talk about how this book actually could be called Naomi because it's a story about Naomi. It starts with Naomi and Elimelech, and we're going to see it ends with Naomi and her joy. And it's this story of God's love for Naomi, but ultimately God's love for his people. And that no matter the trials that they go through, which the book of Ruth is full of trials, no matter the trials that they go through, they can trust in him. This is a book for people living in the real world. This is a book for people living in the real world. This book is a roller coaster. Starts out this deep, dark dive down. Then there's a little bit of hope. There's harvest has come. But then there's more despair. They're just out gleaning, just trying to get some food, then kind of a flat line, the harvest goes on, then some hope, then some disappointment, and it's just all over the place, this roller coaster of events, and this is life, is it not? Hard circumstance, then maybe a little bit of hope, and then more bad, maybe just a flat line for a while, then lots of good times, and then another dive down. Life is up and down and all over the place, and so is the narrative of Ruth. It's four short chapters for the people of God to read and take heart that God is in charge 
and is working for the ultimate good of his people. I don't say that lightly. God is in charge and is working for the ultimate good of his people. He providentially rules all things and brings them to their God-glorifying and good-for-us ends. This does not mean that there aren't very real times that God's providential working is a bitter providence. That's what's the, 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 uh, the sort of conflict, the tension in the book. Naomi knows that God's providence at times is bitter. She comes, she, she leaves to go to Moab, and as she comes back, she says in chapter 1, verse 21, that I went away full, meaning she had a husband and sons, and she has come back empty. She says in verse 21 of the first chapter, I went away full, and she says, the Lord brought me back empty. I went away full, but God brought me back empty. Is Naomi wrong there? How dare she blame God? How dare she say, I went away full, but God brought me back empty? Wouldn't it be better if she said that maybe Satan brought her back empty? She went away full, and then Satan did all these bad things and brought her back empty. Surely the hard things that happened to her were out of God's hands. Does Naomi have good theology there when she says, I went away full, but God brought me back empty? Well, her bitterness certainly may not be glorifying to God, but I don't think her diagnosis is wrong. It's important to see this. Naomi's confident understanding of a God in charge of all things, even bitter circumstances, her understanding that even the bitter providences that God allows in a person's life are so entirely under his control is the basis that's going to empower her to rejoice when the good comes her way. It is that understanding, that commitment to a God who's in charge of all things, even in the bitterness of this life, that is going to enable her to fully rejoice and to trust him and to trust him that God is working for her good. What we're going to see by the end of chapter 4, which we're not there yet, but we're going to see that God is working universal and eternal good through these circumstances. We must, as biblical Christians, work hard to try and see things as best as we can from God's view. We must confess that at any moment, God is doing 10,000 different things. Right now in this room, God is doing 10,000 different things in all of us and around all of us. And we at best as an individual might see one or two of those things. And you got a 50% chance that you've got one of them right. I mean, there's, God is up to hundreds of thousands of different things. We can see a few of them. And I'm not sure I get even 50% of them right most of the time. God is working we might get even the things we think we know what God is doing. We might get them wrong. And so this is a heart-wrenching story of incredible grief. The loss that Naomi suffers. And yet great joy and trust in the God who determines to not fail his people and who has the power to make sure that he doesn't. So this morning we enter into this crazy third chapter in the book of Ruth 
What in the world is going on here? Chapter 1 is the dive into Moab, right? And they take off and they go to get bread because there's famine in Bethlehem. And they take off, they go into Moab. And then what happens? There's death. And Limelech dies. Her sons, Malon Kilion, take Moabite wives. They take pagan worshiping um, idolatrous wives. Not good for a, a family of the true God to take wives that don't worship the true God. They worship pagan gods. But they take Moabite wives, and then they die. And so Naomi is left with just Ruth and Orpah. And as they head back to Bethlehem, because they've heard there's a harvest, Naomi turns around and says, you don't want to go with me. It's not profitable to come with me. I have, I have nothing to offer you. Go home. Orpah listens. But Ruth clings. Ruth clings. Remember, she says that your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth has a genuine conversion. She is going to cling not only to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. Your God will be my God. And in chapter 2, this incredible providential hand of God orchestrating that when Ruth goes out to glean, she just so happened to enter the field of Boaz. And behold, who shows up that day but Boaz to meet Ruth. Incredible, this Working this weaving, totally um, unbeknownst to Ruth and to Boaz and to Naomi, they're just surviving. They're just going through their life. And God is orchestrating in the midst of bitter providences, but he's orchestrating in the midst of it all this incredible reality that we'll see by the end of chapter 4. She happens into this field, and Boaz, in chapter 2, verse 12, he comments on Ruth's faithfulness and trust in God. He says to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done in coming home with Naomi to take care of Naomi, trusting in the one true God. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He commends Ruth. Because in the midst of all of this bitterness and difficulty, what has Ruth done? She has taken refuge under the wings of God. And that's where we ended last week. The harvest then continues, and we're left with this clinghanger, cliffhanger. What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen now? I mean, they, they've met, but there's nothing really happening. There, there's this, is anything going to come of this relationship? And so as we get into this narrative of chapter 3, there's some things we need to understand and just kind of briefly you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 10, 5 through 10. The concept of Leverite, that's how I'm going to say it, Leverite marriage, which was that, uh, we could, we could Deuteronomy, let's just read it. Deuteronomy 20, chapter 25, uh, quickly, just so you're not taking my word for it. This is Deuteronomy 25, verses, starting in verse 5, page 196 of your Pew Bible. It says, if brothers dwell together... And one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. Trying to talk him out of it. Come on, young lad. This is the way this works. Perpetuate the name of your brother. Keep the land in the family. If he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, there's some things there that are like, what? <laughs> but you get the idea of the importance they have of, of the name of the family name, the, the, the primary son, and that name being perpetuated with this land. It was all tied up in this promised land and clans and sons and, and family such that that was a primary importance, such that if you disregarded that, if you pushed that aside, then you had your sandal pulled off, disgrace of all disgraces, I guess, that you had your sandal pulled off. But we all get the reference that you get to spit in his face and condemn him for not doing what he should do. So there's these very important ties. So there we kind of understand what they're looking for when they call Boaz a redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. He is this individual that they're related to you remember the scene in chapter 1 where Naomi says to them, even if I were to marry tonight and have sons, would you wait around for them to grow up that you might marry them? Because that's one other way it could work. If Naomi, if she were in child-rearing years, she could get married, have another child, and when that child came of age, he could then marry Ruth or Orpah, and then that, that descendant would be in honor of the firstborn son, either Malon or Kilion. And so that is, that is just how they kept the land and the family all together. She's like, that's not going to happen. Naomi is too old for this. And so they're looking for another family member to redeem the property and, then, and also then marry Ruth and take care of Ruth and Naomi uh, throughout, the, throughout their lives. There's this terrible story you can read it for your Sunday afternoon in Genesis 38. And I say terrible because it is terrible. It's a, it's a startling story. If you think that one was startling, read Genesis 38 between Onan, Judah, and Tamar. And how important it was that this family line be kept up. But isn't it interesting, Naomi forgot she had any relatives. You know, it's a fascinating part of the story. Naomi's telling him, go home. There's no one for you in Bethlehem. She's forgot that there is actually a redeemer. There actually is someone they can get married to. If you've gone through any grief, you get it. If you've gone through hard seasons, you know what it's like to have so much darkness surrounding you that you forget all things. You forget all hope. And Naomi has lost all hope. She doesn't, there is nothing she's convinced. That's why it's so important to be engaged in the body of Christ. We need people around us that when life gets dark, there is someone there to walk alongside of us. And thankfully, she has Ruth there besides her. But at the end, beside her, at the end of chapter 2, we see Naomi grows excited because Boaz, Boaz indeed is a potential redeemer. He can lift Naomi and Ruth out of their poverty. So they set a plan. And it seems a little sketchy. Did anybody else catch that in the narrative? 
What, what are they going to do? Ruth, get cleaned up. Anoint yourself. You want to smell good? Put on, your, put on your nice dress or whatever, you know, and go down. And when Bo has, has partied a little bit and his heart is merry, um, then, then go to him and, and see what he says. He'll tell you what to do. Now, it sounds very suspicious. And actually, it sounds like a plan for disaster. Um, if you come to me for counsel on uh, marriage, this will not be the chapter that I will pull out <laughs> to find a spouse. This is not the way to do it. Uh, but this is the way that they go about it. They, they're kind of, they see, a, they see a way they want things to go, and they're going to take the initiative, put it in their own hands, and try to accomplish it. Um, just side note, don't, again, don't do this if you are, uh, if you're young and trying to, um, you know, look at your future of prospects, um, you do not avoid compromising positions by plunging yourself into them. <laughs> and this is exactly what they do. If you want to avoid compromising yourself, start by not allowing yourself to get in compromising positions. It's a good start. That's good for all of us. If you don't want to get into and, and behave in a way you don't want to behave, just stay away from the opportunity to even behave the way that you want to behave. But nevertheless, they go ahead. But don't assume that then Ruth and Boaz commit unrighteousness, commit unrighteous acts, because this book emphasizes their righteousness. They are worthy people. They are people of character. They are people that... Um, love God. They are meant, he is a man of standing. She is a worthy woman. We don't need to assume that there's some sort of uh, unrighteous activity. Uh, fornication was any sort of relationship outside of marriage in this context. That, so any activity of that nature, which is what it seems like they're trying to get to have happen, that would be fornication, sin back in those days. Believe it or not, it is actually still sin today. You wouldn't believe it if you watch television or engage anyone in our culture. Still sin today, any sort of activity outside of heterosexual marriage. But there you have it. In those days, it was sin. So we don't need to assume that this happens. But do notice Ruth's language. Boaz has prayed that she would find favor with God in whose wings you have taken refuge. And so when she goes to Boaz, what is her request of him? She says, verse 9, chapter 3, he said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Spread your wings. She's essentially asking Boaz to, in a small way, answer the prayer he prayed for her, to become the manifestation of of this prayer, she asked if you have a different translation, it might say garment or covering or even skirt, spread your skirt over me. Uh, and this, this word is used 35 different times in the Old Testament. Most of the time, it's, it just means wings. It's talking about cherubim's wings. It's just the word for wings. But its clearest reference is in Ezekiel 18, verse 8. If you've ever done your Bible reading project through the year and you get to Ezekiel, you're like, what in the world is going on in Ezekiel? Well, you'll notice chapter 18 is a very interesting chapter. Again, you can read Genesis 38, Ezekiel 18 this afternoon. But it's it, there is where God has said to spread his garment or his wings over Israel, his bride, 
and to enter into a covenant with her. So, so much is going on here, asking him to spread his wings over her. We see that Boaz remarks to Ruth that this latest kindness is greater than even the first of following Naomi. This greatest, greater kindness because she's pursued a redeemer for the family. Not just off chasing some young man, rich or poor, to take care of her, but being faithful to the way Yahweh set all this up. So it's incredible, all these things that are going on here, but just as it all seems to be going right, like you have this great, and says, oh, this is oh, great, Boaz, yeah, I'm a redeemer. I'll, I, that, let's, yes, I will redeem you, but wait, there's a redeemer that is yet closer than I. And that's when there's this collective, aww. You know, there's, it's supposed to be, it's kind of like, oh no, what? What do you mean? We didn't think there was any redeemers, and now all of a sudden we find out there's two redeemers potentially in the land. Boaz, who we're all cheering for, I hope, if you've got any sense, you're cheering for Boaz, this righteous man. But Boaz says, oh, actually, there's, there's somebody even closer than him. So don't glance too quickly at the remedy that Boaz chooses. He does not try to unrighteously orchestrate to get things his way. He simply does the next right thing and trusts God. He simply does the next right thing and trusts God to do what's best. This is huge. Ruth as well, she goes home before sunrise trusting God that in the midst of trial after trial after trial, she should seek simply to do what is right and trust his hand, trust God's hand to care for her and Naomi and do exactly what is right. It may end up not being Boaz. It might end up being a worse redeemer. But she is trusting herself to the hand of God. Through this, though the, the schemes, uh, the, the rendezvous with Ruth and Boaz, Naomi confesses as well through this scheme that she confesses to Ruth that they should just listen. What is the man going to do? He will resolve it. They should trust God. Why would they do this? Because they know whose wings they have taken refuge under. They know whose wings they're under. How can you, how can you just do the next right thing and trust that it will be okay. I mean, we've all got, you know, all these different things we want to see happen. They've got all these different things they want to see happen. They have wants and desires. And all they do is they do the next right thing, and they trust their God because they know whose wings they have taken refuge under. David speaks this way in Psalm 17. David, who, ah, spoiler alert, it's going to show up at the end of the book here. But Psalm 17, David says, verses 6 through 9, Of God, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, has said. We've seen that in the book of Ruth. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. The way I put it last week, you could talk about being in the warmth 
in the warmth of his wings. Or he could talk about being hid in his hammock. Last week was the, the gimmick I had of the, the Hesed hammock, the hope-filled assurance and the mystery and majesty of his control and kindness. And we hang this hammock between the two trees that God is in charge and he is good. His loving kindness never fails. And so you hang this hammock between these two trees that God is in charge. He's in control. He's going to work all things, all good things for his people. And so we can do the next right thing. We can sit in his hammock and we can trust him because we know the God under whose wings we have taken refuge. Elizabeth Elliot uses this illustration in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. Commend it to you. Uh, it's actually a book based off of talks that she gave. But she's the wife of Jim Elliott, who I referenced from time to time, who died while ministering to the Warani Indians in Ecuador. And she's left alone on the mission field in her 20s with a 10-month-old child. And she says, I was tempted, as all of us are, to say, well, Lord, you promised to help me, but you do have a kind of a funny way of going about it. This is not my idea of the way God is supposed to help one of his servants who is trying to be obedient and trying to be faithful. And what does he say to an argument like that? The same thing he's always saying. Trust me. Trust me. Some days you will see, someday even you will see that there's sense in this. Your suffering is never for nothing, she goes on with this illustration. While Jim was building a piece of furniture, if there was one thing he could not stand, it was for me to hang over his shoulder. Anybody else have that kind of experience? You're trying to work on a project and somebody's kind of always overlooking you and trying to see what's going on. If Jim was building a piece of furniture, there's one thing he could not stand. It was for me to hang over his shoulder. And I would say, well, what's this thing? And what are you doing with that tool? And why do you do it this way? And how in the world are you going to fit that thing into this? And he would tell me to get lost. When it's finished, I'd see. When it's finished, I'd see. She says this brings about a very simple analogy. God is saying, trust me. Accept it now. See later. Seeking refuge under wings takes a certain posture. We become like the, the, the religious Pharisee says, uh, demands of God, life must go this way. See, how, see what I, how great I am. See what I've done for you, God. Life must go this way. But in, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives this analogy. The righteous man, oh, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of these people, but I, I tithe and I fast and I give my prayers and then the, the, the other individual comes in and lays himself down at the mercy of God and says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus goes on to say, one of those individuals went home right with God, justified. And it was the man who simply took refuge in God and in his mercy. Taking refuge under his wings takes a certain posture. It is the humble who find refuge in all that Christ is for them. It is so important to set your life in the warmth of his wings while you can. This life is full of trials. And you don't know what ones you yet face. You don't know what ones you yet face. But you can know the refuge of a God who will carry you through every trial 
to find your ultimate joy in the Savior, King Jesus Christ. He has come to earth where we celebrate at Christmas, live the righteous life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve. Every one of us confessing our sins, trusting in Christ, being forgiven, brought into his family, adopted, put under his wings through faith in Christ, put in the warmth of his wings, hung in the Hesed hammock, and in the promise that he will not fail those who are his. At the ultimate day, we'll cover this more next week, but in the ultimate day, God will not fail. It does not mean there are no bitter providences along the way. It means that in the final day, God will not fail those who are his, and we can trust him. Let's pray. God, as we anticipate in this Advent season, Father, we are longing. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And as we long, we pray, help us to trust you. Help us, God, to see you are the God who works all things together for the good of your people. And while a bitter providence may at times darken our eyes from seeing all that you're doing, we nevertheless can know that it is true. Our God reigns. Our God rules. Our God is in charge. And our God is good. We have come to take refuge under your wings. And God, may we curl up like a warm blanket at times on cold nights in your love and care for your people, trusting and treasuring you above all else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.